Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we will begin the part two of our emphasis upon Jesus' means for making disciples. Specifically, we will examine how the New Testament writers broke down Jesus' instruction to offer the church true doctrine, followed by the practical implications of that truth to be expressed in how the disciples live their lives. Thanks for joining us today as we look at the second half of orthodoxy by focusing on what Jesus taught through orthopraxy. Emily and I lived in Dallas going to school there. Uh, We had been given opportunity with a church that wasn't our own, but one that was in the city, to be part of a homeless ministry. Every Friday, one of the local churches would put together volunteers who would bring food out into the deepest, darkest places uh, of the city. Uh, In fact, you can even look today, this uh, location, uh, downtown Dallas, has the highest percentage of uh, violent crime and sexual offenders registered at that address. And so every single Friday, we would go down there and we would stand in line and set up tables and we would serve. I only have just a handful of pictures uh, from that time, blurry as my cell phone camera was back in the day. Um, But you can even see from these glimpses that there is an attempt at light in darkness But I have to tell you, it was very dark. And I don't just mean because there wasn't a lot of light. I mean spiritually heavy. I can remember attempts of gathering folks around to share the gospel. I can remember moments where you would have folks that would speak up for a word of encouragement offered to these individuals who largely are being held in slavery and bondage by addiction and drug abuse and alcohol abuse. And I remember more clear than anything, one man in particular. Every time we would get the line together, you could feel this spirit of anger that was coming from this man in the corner. And anytime you try to offer a word of encouragement, you'd hear from the back this boisterous, dissenting, angry man. And week after week, that man kept bothering me. <laughs> The Lord would not get that man out of my heart. Amen. Come to find out his name was Roger. And by God's grace, he placed upon me the mission of trying to minister specifically to Roger. And so I I left the food line and I'd go over next to this big hairy man who had this backpack on the whole time, always clenched up tight like this. And I'd ask Roger how he was doing. I'd find out what was new in his life. And I would weed my way through the forest of his frustration every single week. And it occurred to me as I ministered every Friday that I needed to learn more about this. And so my senior thesis in my missions class, I decided to study the homeless as a subculture of America. What is it that causes this to happen in our country? And so the more that I learned about it, the more I became softened to some of the struggles. Do you know that so many homeless folks are veterans? Did you know that? That so many of them have not had the ability to even process what they have gone through in life? Do you know that so many of them have been abused at home by parents and and siblings and aunts and uncles? There there is a, a staggering amount of 
crushing of life that has caused so many of these folks to find themselves uh, bewildered, uh, paranoid, um, and without any desire to re-enter society as, as a functioning member. As God began to work on my heart, he began to grow compassion for me, for Roger. And it occurred to me, I could not just minister to this man out on the streets. I had to invite him into my home. And so that's what Emily and I did. Uh, we invited Roger to come and not eat in the darkness of the folding tables that are set up in that parking lot, but that we would make a home-cooked meal and invited him to come over. And then we'd invite other friends that we knew from church to come and join us. And then when my firstborn was born, we took him. This is little baby Micah right here. We took him down to meet Roger. And pretty soon we found over the years of our ministry there that there was a lot more to be garnered in showing this man dignity. And little by little, there was a change that began to be made in his life, where at one point all he had was anger and frustration. By the end of our four years there, by God's grace, Roger turned to me and he said, you know what, Ryan? I think I'm going to go get my driver's license back again. I think I'm going to buy a van and I think I'm going to go back home. That was amazing to see the transformation. Little by little, my heart had to be changed because I had to see these people in a way that was different from how I'm so used to seeing just the uh, signs on the edge of the road looking for another buck. Is it easy to pass judgment there? What do you think? Is that easy? Sure, it's easy. It's a lot harder to have your heart softened. It's harder still to let the softening of your heart lead you to open up your home and to change your own actions to reach out to them. We are uh, entering into one of the last messages on our study of the Great Commission of Jesus. And today we're going to focus on this final participle found in chapter 28, verse 20. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn there with me. And we can see how being a missionary for me in Dallas did not require that I had to go overseas. I could be a missionary right where I was, but I had to first change how I thought. I had to be taught differently. And then in the scope of that teaching, I had to have compassion grow in my heart that then led to a change in my actions. We're going to see today how teaching is a requirement of making disciples that lead us to behavioral change in our actions. Matthew chapter 28, just reading in verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You may recall last week we looked at that uh, second participle of means that's given here, baptizing. We looked at how that has a direct application with water baptism as an initiation into the family of God. This is how disciples start their journey. Even if uh, you come to faith uh, later in life and don't get baptized until you're an adult, no doubt you have been immersed by God's grace in a particular doctrinal understanding. The doctrine of the God who is found in three persons. Help me out. Who is it? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So the water baptism has a larger picture of a doctrinal understanding that changes our thinking. Now, I taught you a new word with that. Does anyone remember? Ortho something. Someone, yeah, orthodontist. I know somebody thought that was what that sounded like. Orthodoxy. That's the necessary first component. So orthodoxy being right thinking, but right thinking leads us to a, a second ortho. What is it? Orthopraxy. And this is how we live. This is right behavior. This is what we're going to study for this, one, this morning because Jesus outlines these two requirements of making a disciple. You have to have right thinking. You have to have right behavior. The church is the one responsible for both of those. I want to just point out to you because we did a little bit of a time in God's word last week looking to see how this exchange shows up. I want to see if you can spot it again. Ready for a quiz? Everybody ready? All right, here we go. Titus 1.1. Paul starts his letter saying, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to further the faith of God's elect in their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Orthodoxy. Did you see it up here? Right thinking. Where is it? Very good. You spotted it. It's in their knowledge of the truth, which leads to orthopraxy. And where was that? That leads to godliness. We could, we could spend 30 minutes up here flipping through verse after verse after verse to see this reality in the obedience of the apostles to take Jesus's commission seriously. For this morning, as we look into orthopraxy, I'm going to break it down in the way in which the New Testament has broken it down. So two more new words for you this morning. Because as we look into the New Testament, we see again and again that the church being instructed by Paul, is built by and responsible for orthopraxy seen in two ways. This funny little word right there called kerygma and another funny little word there called didache. Now, I've given you the translation of what both of those mean. Kerygma is the preaching. It is the proclamation of the truth. Kerygma means to speak forth, to proclaim it. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel message. It doesn't require your convincing to be true. It's like gravity. It's true whether you like it or not. That's the kerygma. That has been entrusted to you as the church. But then there's the second half of this, which is called the didache. The Didache is found in the instruction that comes from the Kerygma. So the Kerygma is true, whether you believe it or not. We could cover some of this. I'm sure that you're familiar with it already. Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Um, Do I have to convince you of that for that to be true? Or is that true? That's true. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's true. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the grave, the place all of us will go because of sin. Yet Jesus had no sin. None of this requires your convincing for it to be true. It is all part of the kerygma. Ready for the best part? On the third day, he rose again doesn't matter if you believe that or not. You don't have to believe that to make it true. It is true like gravity is true. 
Hopefully, you can come to the place by God's leading by his spirit that your heart is softened, that you accept that truth. Because when you do, this is where the rest of the New Testament unfolds. We have sound doctrine, which is truth. It is kerygma. And then we have everything else that is taught to us. This, this exchange between these two concepts, that which is true, and then the teaching that flows from that truth, that is the entirety of Paul's writings. In fact, I want to just point out to you, if you do a little Bible study with me this morning, you guys ready to flip some pages? Look with me to the book of Ephesians. Let's just flip there real quick. Ephesians, I turned right to it. How about that? I beat everybody. Ephesians. What you will have, and we don't have time to read through the whole thing today. Someday we'll maybe just take the whole morning and do that. But for this morning, I want you to see that chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all kerygma. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all what's true. And then starting in chapter 4, look with me in Ephesians 4. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And do you know what we have right after that? Imperative verb, imperative verb, imperative verb, imperative verb, imperative verb. Now go and live like this. Act like this. Do this. Everything from chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 are all didache. They're all the teaching that flows from this. Another example, and you can study this on your own time, is the book of Colossians. Chapters 1 and 2 in Colossians are all kerygma. They're true whether you believe it or not. And chapters 3 and 4 in Colossians are all didache. So here's what you do with that truth. When we look again at Jesus' commission in Matthew's gospel, we see that part of the essential component of making a disciple requires this teaching. A teaching that rests upon that which is true. I want to break down for you from Jesus' own command a few critical conclusions for us this morning. The first is this. You cannot make disciples without teaching them. You cannot make a disciple without first teaching them. In fact, we're going to rest right again upon the etymology of the word Disciple. What is a disciple? Shout it out if you know. Follower. That's good. That's actually not what the word means though. Disciple means student. That's correct. It means pupil. It means learner. The, The very definition of the word disciple itself is somebody who is learning. Therefore means must be a teacher involved. When we see the gospel through the book of Acts spreading to the Gentile world, the very first Gentile that we have turning to faith is an Ethiopian. And this Ethiopian is reading in the scroll of Isaiah, and he comes to a point where he doesn't understand. Philip, being led by the Spirit, comes over and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he's like, how can I understand it? Unless somebody explains it. Because in order to become a disciple, you must Have a teacher. You must be taught. If you are not taught, well, then you're what's called a convert. That's all you are. If there's no teaching that's involved, then all we're doing is making converts. And converts don't make more converts. But disciples 
make more disciples. Do you know why that is? Because they've been taught. I love this. I love this because, well, partly because I'm a teacher and and an elder. But when you have the instructions uh, that Paul gives to Titus to make uh, uh, and appoint elders, I want you to see this qualification. This is in Titus 1.9. Paul says, uh, to that elder, this is a quali- qualification for an elder, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So elders are taught so that they can do what? Well, it's, it's up here in two ways. So that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Oh, I, I, hope, I hope I'm getting across to you guys this morning. Here, here's the idea why you don't want to be a convert. You want to be a disciple because you want to make more disciples. And the only way, the only way you truly are going to become a disciple is if you are taught and invested what that means to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because then you can go make more. Converts don't do that. There's one other thing that I want to highlight in this. There is no version of a disciple. And we don't have this anywhere in the New Testament. There's no version of a disciple that just says, do it because I said so. I said so. My dad used to tell me that sometimes. He was probably correct in saying that, by the way, because I wasn't ever asking the question why, because I was interested in learning more. I was interested in finding a way out of doing what he was asking me to do. So he'd just come down, well, because I said so. Can you, can you turn to the verse in the Bible that says, because I said so? Do you know it's not in there? I, I don't even know if you recognize the mercy of God. Because could he do that? What do you think? Could God just be like, because I said so? Sure he could. He's God. In fact, there are some other faiths, uh, Islam in particular, that that's their understanding of God. We don't need to know why. We don't need to be taught how to do this just because he said so. Part of your heart should want to obey because he is who he is. We're going to cover that on our fourth conclusion. But at this point, what I want you to see is that God in his mercy explains it to you. He shows us the reason why were to live in such a way. And this is a critical component of making a disciple. We read it this morning already. Uh, You heard from Charlene. This comes as Paul's instruction to Titus. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. When I taught on Titus a few years ago, I shared this with you guys because I had read this verse wrong my whole life. I thought that what it said was, you must teach sound doctrine. Do you know that's not what it's... It doesn't say you teach sound doctrine. It says you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to divide everybody up by age and sex. We have older men, we have older women. We have younger men, we have younger women. And in every case, they are not taught sound doctrine. They're taught how to live in light of that sound doctrine. Now, do you remember? I taught you two, two new words. Kerygma, which is the proclamation, and Didache, which is the teaching that comes from that. This is all Didache. So I want you to see, number one, you cannot make disciples without teaching them. Secondly, you cannot become a disciple without obedience. Again, in verse 20, Jesus' words say, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. It will do you no good to lock it up in here and never have it show its evidence in your life. You will be progressing absolutely zero distance in your sanctification and holiness 
if what you know to be true is never manifest in your life because you don't obey. There's a shocking statement in Luke 6.46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord? And you don't do what I say. So you ever see the, the oxymoron there? Like you, <laughs> you probably should stop saying that, I would imagine Jesus would say. You probably should stop calling me Lord because if you call me Lord, you're going you're gonna to do the things that I say. Another verse in John 10, this is a great one. Jesus says, my sheep, listen to my voice. Does he stop there? Ooh, maybe some of your seats are getting a little warm right now. I hope they are because it's not enough to listen, folks. It's not enough to listen. If you want to be a sheep, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you listen because he knows you. And then what do you do? And you follow It is impossible to become a disciple without obedience. Now, I have a lot more I want to say on this. We're going to cover it on another message because you actually have an impossibility onto obedience without God's help. But he does help you to obey. In fact, when you read Jesus's words here in verse 20, he says, teaching them to obey. That Greek word for obey has another little slight nuance within its semantic range. Uh, It also can mean to guard. Or to treasure. Think about how the translation just changes a little bit if you think of it that way. Jesus telling his disciples, go make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to guard everything that I have commanded you. Isn't that good? Because you could obey like you do with the police officer that was sitting on the corner up here as I was driving. Did anybody else see that? Cop on the corner? Right? Yeah, I'm going to make sure that I'm obeying. Right? That's not treasuring it. That's not guarding it. Well, this idea of obedience is one that understands that which has been given to you in command, you are to take care of and to treasure it. Recently, I was uh, working with Micah, um, uh, moving some plywood and using a drill and a hammer. And I was just remembering the days working with my dad. Using a drill and a hammer. Now, I'm much better at it today. And I, I was watching my poor boy, which I, he's shaking his head because I, I didn't even warn him I was going to use this as an illustration. But if you're using a drill and you're, you're a little bit off on an angle, you know what's going to happen on a Phillips head? It's going to spin, right? And the whole thing's going to break and you're going to jack it right into your hand and then you're going to go one of, one of those, right? Anybody, anybody, any Christians in church today that have done that? Thank you, Phil. Appreciate it. How, how do you uh, how do you get better at using a drill? Yeah, not by reading it in a book. That's what I told him. I said, "There's only one way to get better at this, pal. You got to do it. You just got to get out there and you got to do it." And I found myself taking those things that my dad did with me, and now do you see what I'm doing with them? Why? Because I've obeyed, but I've obeyed in a unique way. I've obeyed such that I treasure, I want to guard and protect that which was given to me. This is exactly what Jesus wants to see you do as the church. He doesn't want you to just, oh, yes, sir, all right, obey. No, he wants you to to put it down deep in your heart, knowing that this is something that now has shaped and defined who I am as a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is that which I'm going to care for and protect in my obedience to pass on to those who come after me. We, got, we good on this? Everybody with me? Thirdly, you cannot pick and choose what you want to obey. 
<laughs> Sorry to ruin that one for you. If you look back with me into chapter 28, verse 20, teaching them to obey what? What's the next word? Take a look in your Bibles because you've got to circle it. You're going to miss the point if you don't. Teaching them to obey what? Everything. Teaching them to obey all. Teaching them to obey everything. How you doing with that, guys? How you doing with that? What, what, what area of your life are you still like, you know, God doesn't mind. Nobody knows. What, what part of your life is still like, well, this is who I am. That's just who, that's who I am. Never going to change. What part of your life is the Spirit of God still going, I, I would like this part of you too. I would like all of you. Because Jesus wants all of you. So you have to obey everything that he said. Imagine if you tried picking and choosing with the government, with your taxes. I just don't think I'm going to pay tax today on gasoline or goods or income. Right? How's that going to go? How's that going to work out for you? Imagine if you tried that with your employer. Your employer says, all right, this is the plan for today. And you're like, eh, I don't feel like it. That's just not who I am. Right? Make sure that we don't miss this, that part of the instruction to make a disciple is to make sure that you are carrying everything that God, through Jesus' instructions, have taught us on how we live. All of it. Now, at some point here this morning, you should be feeling a little bit of a weight, thinking like, I don't think I can do this. And I want to tell you, you can't. Except that God's mercy has allowed you obedience even when you fail. And you will fail. Do you know what you do when you fail? You say, Father, forgive me. And you model the genuineness of that request because what are you doing to one another? Are you holding grudges against each other? Holding unforgiveness in your heart against one another? Because God says, I can't forgive you then. No, God has given you obedience even when you make mistakes, rebellion, and sin. That we come in humility to confess our sins and to ask God for forgiveness. So I want you to know there, there is a heaviness in this because absolutely you are going to fail. I want you to know that God's mercy has given you a way of obeying him even in your failures. All right, fourthly and lastly, you cannot obey without a relationship, which kind of brings me to that main point. You cannot obey without a relationship. In fact, this may be worth writing down. I put this in my notes. Obedience without a relationship is compliance. That's all it is. It's actually not obedience. It's simple compliance. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, sure, you may look and sound Christian. You, you know you can. Do you know there's a lot of people who are really good at just you know, look in the park. You can put a smile on your face two hours on, on a Sunday morning. Absolutely, you can. If you are missing the relationship component, your obedience will be surface only. It will never penetrate deeper. Jesus gives this very uh, dangerous, sobering warning in Matthew chapter 7. I know you know this verse. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. By the way, doing the will of the Father. Kregma or Didache? A little bit of quiz. 
It's dedicated. It's what you do. It's the, it's the teaching of what you do. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name uh, drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Hold on. Doesn't that sound like doing everything? Doesn't that sound like behaving the right way? But Jesus, he adds this necessary component to what is only surface level obedience. Jesus says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. you away from me, workers of iniquity. Without the relational component... Your obedience will only and always be external compliance. So let's talk about the relationship for a moment. Uh, we had the softball game a couple Saturdays ago, right? And I remember when um, uh, we were on the field, Mara put Emily out into the outfield. And I, I'd watch a couple of batters from Felch go through the rotation. And then one of their sluggers came up. And I saw Emily way up by the infield. Now, I said, Emily, go back! And she looked at me like this. And I'm supposed to be announcing, so I can't scream that loud. So I'm, do hand, I'm doing hand gestures, like, get back to the fence. And sure enough, the guy hit it right up to the fence. Now, I talked to her afterwards. I was like, did, did you hear me say that you need to move back? And she said, well, someone else told me to move up. And then someone else told me to move there, and then you told me to move back. Now, I said to her, and who should you listen to? <laughs> Do you see the critical importance of the relationship when it comes to obedience? A better example of this would be um, my daughter on the soccer field. Um, it's an amazing thing. If you get to go to an 8 or 9 or 10-year-old soccer game, it is like a cacophony of instruction coming from the crowd. You have hundreds of parents screaming at these children. And somehow, somehow, Sadie could still listen to me. Do you, do you realize that? Of all, of all of the parents that are yelling, somehow my daughter heard my voice. And I was trying to help her out and tell her what to do too. I remember this when I was a kid. I remember being able to detect my parents' voice from the crowd. Why? What, what, was the, what was the part that allowed my behavior to change, Sadie's behavior to change? It was because we had a relationship. It was a few years ago, I did an example. We won't do it this morning, but I remember I had one child from the congregation stand up here and three women. I had the child turn his back and each of the women said, uh, Johnny, whoever, whoever it was, follow me. Johnny, follow me. Do you remember this? Do you remember that illustration from years ago? Johnny, follow me. And um, the kid knew immediately which one was his mom? Why? This is not a trick question, guys. Do you know why? Because there was a relationship. I'm, I'm going to share with you a verse that's going to floor you right now. You ready? This is from John 15. Watch what Jesus says. This is from Jesus, the son of the living God. He says to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business. You get the picture? Jesus is saying the same thing I'm saying right now. The servant is what for obedience? Paycheck. All right. like, this is transactional. It is external conformity onto obedience. Jesus says to his followers, that's ain't what you guys are. I'm not calling you servants any longer. I'm calling you friends because you do what I command. 
Servant doesn't know his master's business. So the instruction here is giving information for the why. Here's why you're going about this, Jesus says. They get it. They understand it. That's what has built the relationship. That's what affords the obedience. Jesus says, instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Someone help me out. What's another word for have made known to you? It's the title of the sermon. Taught them. Teaching. That's right. Jesus taught them. Do you you get the point here? Jesus himself shows us the critical example of making sure that we are able to obey. You, I say it one more time. I'm a preacher. I can say things a bunch of times, right? That's all right. It's in my job description. You cannot obey without a relationship. Your obedience must be grounded in your relationship with Jesus. All right. So what does that mean for us today? I want to offer you just three forms of application. Um, The first one starts with your head. You may need to adjust your attention by becoming a learner in relationship with Jesus. It may be for you that church is so familiar that it's just a place you go for a couple hours first day of the week. If that's all it is, I might suggest to you you're wasting your time. Instead, make some adjustments so that when you gather here, you gather to learn. By the way, that should be the expectation of what church is. Instruction for our understanding of what it means to be a disciple. And here's the really, really, really great part about this. Do you know what that means? That means that this right now is the Great Commission. Think about that for a moment. So sometimes, and by the way, in my understanding of studying missions, this was always underemphasized. So let me correct the scales and overemphasize it now. The Great Commission is not singularly about going somewhere else. This in the church right now is the Great Commission. Do you know why? Because we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We immerse you in that form of orthodoxy. And now... We participate together in instructing you, instructing me in everything that Jesus commanded. That's happening right now. Our obedience, your obedience to the Great Commission can be fulfilled by participating as a learner, as a disciple. And so if you're going to be a learner, maybe you need to take better notes. Anybody? No? You need to pay attention better on a Sunday morning, right? Tom did a great job with the kids this morning, right? The, the voices of Goliath and yeah, little pipsqueak David. Like, man, the kids were zoned in in that moment. Maybe it requires for you better situational awareness, right? If you're coming in here with a bunch of baggage, how's that going to affect you to learn? Right? If you're coming in here with a bunch of grief, I mean, your, your mind's going to be stuck on all that. How about other uh, in, uh, methods of instruction like repetition, interacting with content, your own personal study, meditation, reflection? What if you gave yourself some review? I try to do some review on a Sunday morning. Do you know why? Because I don't want to waste your time. We're here to do, to do what? We're, we're here to become disciples. How do you become a disciple? I've got to be immersed in the right orthodoxy, and I've got to be taught how to obey. You guys with me on this? This is happening right now. So, so maybe for you, oh, I didn't put it up here. You, you, need to, uh, you need to adjust your attention 
by becoming a learner in relationship with Jesus. This has to do with your head. The relationship is the key aspect. Because you can take the best notes I've ever seen. I've seen some of your notes, by the way. My counseling class folks on Wednesdays. Oh my goodness. Those ladies. Where's Shannon? She not, I don't see her. Oh, she's over. Yeah, that's okay. She'll, she'll listen to this message ten times and write all the notes. I mean, you take some amazing notes. But if you're not doing it in relationship with Jesus, those notes are only ever going to be on a page. Right? So there's, there's a head adjustment that needs to be made. Secondly, there's a heart adjustment that needs to be made. You need to allow God's truth then to change your heart by adopting the heart of Jesus. You need to adopt the heart of Jesus. In fact, I I don't know if I've used this verse yet, but it should be like the theme verse of this study. Jesus says in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all or everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. You can't stay in a page on notes. Can't stay here. Can't stay here. It's got to make the 18-inch journey from your head down to change your heart. Which brings me back to this guy. Because I showed you the story of being a missionary to Roger, right? And I told you the story about how Roger went from being this frustrated, angry man to being somebody who had the courage to once more enter society. But do you know something? The story was never about Roger. Roger wasn't the disciple. Who was? I was. I was the one who was changing. I was the one who had to look and see the homeless differently than I ever did before. I then was the one who had to have my heart changed and filled with compassion so that my actions changed. I was the one who was being changed as a disciple, not Roger. That's what it is for you as well. The work that God wants to see in your life, he will never see at the exception of his work in your life. You yourself are a sacrifice on God's altar that he is molding and shaping. And it starts with your head and it moves to your heart. And who can predict the next word that starts with an H and moves to your hands? That's That you today need to obey. You need to obey Jesus's commands. And that needs to be demonstrated by serving him, by being his hands and his feet. Folks, this takes us from orthodoxy all the way to orthopraxy. Will you pray with me this morning?